Why don't y'all remain standing with me as we read from God's word? I'm going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, and we'll go to verse 35. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, we'll go to verse 35. The words will be here on the screen. And it reads like this. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. I pray that like Mary and Joseph, after hearing this song, that our hearts would be amazed, and we would leave out of here more joyful than we came in. We ask that your spirit would do this work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all take your seats? Uh, in preparation of Christmas, we've been in a series for the past two weeks called Christmas Music and all that it is. Uh, it's, it's, we've just spent these past two weeks examining songs in the Bible that testify about Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, but I love music. I can't sing, but I love music. Uh, and what you find out about songs um, is every song has a story. Every song has a context, the reason why that song was written, and that's what we talked about uh, last week. But what you find out about the really good songs is that the really good songs don't just have a story that caused it, but the really good songs tell a bunch of stories on the inside. Uh, one of my favorite sites to go to as of late is Genius.com. Um, and it's this website that it uh, does a little bit more than just break down the lyrics of each song, right? We all have those friends that they sing and they know the words to the songs and um, it's, ah, you, you need to learn these words. Genius takes it a step further and what they do uh, is they don't just give the words to the song, but within each of the words, uh, each line it brings in backstory to help you understand that song better. And so it's great for familiar songs that you may know all the words to, 
but you don't know why this line was in there. And what it does is it brings new amazement to very old and familiar songs. And as we think about Christmas, the story of Christ coming into the world, I think that's an old song that we hear about time and time again. And my hope is that as we look at this story right here, that it'll bring new amazement to this old song, that God will give us the grace to rethink something familiar. So I want you to jump with me and to start back in verse 21, and I want to set a little bit of the the context of what we just read. In 21, what you find out, you see that Mary and Joseph are a devout and a spiritual family. Pious, right? They love the Lord, very spiritual. And we get that because verses 21 through 24 talk about all the stuff that they did. They named Jesus in obedience to God based on what God told them to name him. They wait for the days of purification back here in the law. Uh, the uh, young boy would get circumcised after the end of eight days. His mom would have to wait 33 days. Then they even find themselves in the temple offering a sacrifice to God. Verses 21 to 24 are meant to draw our eyes to. uh, Jesus was born into a home that gave a bunch of attention to spirituality, to doing what it is that God had said. But then here's one thing that I think we may read all these words, but we'll miss out on. Look here at verse 24 or 23. It says this, just as it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. But and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord. And then it gives what they give. A pair of turtle doves. Or two young pigeons. Why does it bring that out? If you go back to Leviticus, what you'll find out is that's what a poor man would offer to God. That what you were supposed to bring in was a lamb. But if you didn't have enough money to give a lamb, that that what you would do is you would bring in two young turtle doves or a pigeon. Why is that important? Before we get to why it's important about this story, I want you to know it's important because it reveals a truth about God. And the truth about God is that God has always intended that his family would be made up of all type of folk. God always intended that his house provision would be made so that people that didn't have means wouldn't feel like they were less than, but rich and poor could all come in. Here's why that's so important as we think about the story of Jesus' parents is because uh, piety, this religion, this spiritual service that we want to give to God and poverty are not opposites. I think sometimes we live in a world where it's easy for us to think that God loves somebody more or a sign of God's love will be wealth and somebody being well off and a sign of his displeasure is that they will be poor. But this starts off so that you and I see there's not necessarily a correlation in between what somebody has and God's love for them.
Here's why it's so important as it relates to Christ and to us, that as we look at this story about our Savior, we see Jesus is so different than you and I are. In the history of the world, there has been one person that's been able to choose the financial status of the family that he was born into. We talk a lot about his humility to come into earth and to be a man. We talk a lot about his humility when he, uh, uh, as a man, but one thing that we don't think about was that Jesus could have come and been born into any family. And the question that I would ask you is this. If you could choose the financial status of the family that you were born into, what would you choose? (laughs) Honesty. I can always count on my man Tyson back there to answer rhetorical questions. (laughs) Or better yet, if you have ever looked at somebody and said, I wish I had what they had. Or if you look at your own life right now and think about in the family that you have right now or the family that you aspire to, what's getting more of your thought and time and attention? The spiritual well-being or their financial status? Jesus is the only person in history that had that choice. Because I believe he's the only person in history that would have made the choice that he did. And his choice revealed something about God, something about God's agenda for the world. And I think that's a good note for those of us that are parents. That want to give our kids the world. And this season especially may cause some angst as we think about what we need to put Underneath the tree, those of us that may not have means, it may cause some angst when we think about our inability to provide the things at the dinner table that we hoped that we could. But the family that Jesus was born into shows is that the most valuable things that you can give to your children can't be measured in dollar signs. So it puts all of us in the same boat. The story starts off with a poor family. It's very pious, very religious. And they meet this man, Simeon. It says that he's this guy that was devout. Look here at verse 25. It says this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. This was a man that lived under the oppressive Roman rule. He was a man that lived and was waiting for what Israel's consolation or their comfort, what we read about in Isaiah. This was a man who was waiting for God to do what he promised that he said that he would do and to bring comfort. Is there anybody in here that's been waiting For God to bring comfort. If there's anybody in here that feels like they're drowning in sorrow and angst and is waiting for some type of relief from that. All of us are in that boat where we're waiting for something to undo the something wrong that we know is going on here in this world. He's been waiting his whole life and it says 
that the Spirit of God tells him that he's not going to die until he sees the Lord's Messiah, and he's waiting on that. And then into the temple comes this poor family with a baby, and Simeon sings this song. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time on these last 20 minutes is just this song. I want to break the song down into three parts. His joy. His contentment, the clarity with which he sees the world, and the comprehensive nature of God's plan. His contentment, the clarity with which he sees the world, and and this completeness of God's plan. His contentment, verse 29, he starts off and says this, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eye, or, or now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, As you promised. What he starts off and what we see in this man's life is somebody that's gotten what he's wanted. Simeon doesn't talk about death like you and I talk about death. He doesn't think of death like you and I think about death. There's this contentment that he had. And what he says is, now Lord, I'm ready to go. And what you find out and what we all know is that when it comes to life and death, there's two types of people that are ready to go. One is the person that's full of sorrow, and they think, my life is over. The other person is the person that's full of joy and says, it's not that my life is over. My life is complete. Have you ever been at a place where you felt like, I finally got the thing that I wanted, and Lord... I'm ready to go home now. You may not have really felt it on the inside, but you've heard it said. You know, I'm ready to, to go home now. This is what he says. What's the key to this stuff? How does he get this kind of joy? How does he get this kind of contentment that seems foreign to you and I? Yeah, I think the key comes in these first words. 29, he says this. Now, master, you can dismiss your servant. This master-servant language helps us to see Simeon is a guy that is living for somebody else. We tend to think that the source of our joy comes with complete freedom. Right? I'm going to be completely joyful when I get to dictate what I want to do with my life. But here we see this man position himself as a servant living for somebody else. And he says, yo, you can send me home in peace because you did what it is that you said that you would do. And that's, that helps us see. Oh, this is where contentment comes from. Contentment in life comes from this. Believing and expecting God to do what he says that he's going to do. Here's where discontentment in life comes from. Discontentment in life comes from expecting God to do something that he never said that he would do. Holding God hostage to outcomes that he never promised. And this begs the question for us, what are you living for? What are you really living for? Do you know how you can pinpoint what you live for? 
ask yourself the question, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting on? What is the thing that I hope that once I get it, my life will be complete? Maybe it's a job. Maybe you're here and that thing that you're trying to wait on is relationships or the relationship that you're in right now to go to the next level or the relationship that you may have messed up, you're waiting on it to be repaired. Whatever you live for is what you're waiting on. But what you know as well as I do, from years of waiting on Christmas, is that you can live in anticipation of something, but then when you get it, even if you feel right then that your life is complete, You give it a few weeks and you say, you know, I think I want something else. Christmas and New Year's does this. So we spend all year waiting for Tuesday to get what it is that we want. And then a week later, we make resolutions based on how discontent we are with life. Most of our sadness in life doesn't come because God hasn't done what he said that he would do. It's because we aren't paying attention to what it is that he says that he would do. Or we don't really want his promises. And think about this. If you're living your life expecting, wanting, waiting, hoping something other than what God has said, then what you're saying is that God, I need something more than what you've promised to make me happy. That even if you come through on every one of the promises that you made, I'm going to be discontent. And this is the beauty of Simeon's praise, because do you know what takes place? Do you know what's changed here? What circumstance does he have that has changed from the time that he felt this way to the time that he met this baby and sang this song. He hasn't been relieved from any oppression. Rome is still sitting on the throne. He's still going to have to go home and pay his tax dollars to a government that is not out to help him. But he has God's promises. His contentment, listen, it doesn't blind him to reality. His hope doesn't blind him to reality. His hope helps him to see reality for what it really is. This Christian hope, this Christian faith that one day God's going to come in and change this world, it's not just an opiate, it's not just a drug that's meant us to endure hard things in this life but it's meant to change the way that we view everything in this life. So this contentment changes what he sees. When you change what you look forward to, do you know what it does? It changes what you look at. Look at this next verse. Clarity. He says it's now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. 
He's saying his contentment and his joy is rooted in what he's seen. But it begs the question, what exactly did he see? He saw what everybody else saw, but he saw what nobody else saw. What did he actually see? He saw a baby in the arms of a poor family that couldn't even afford to give a lamb. But somehow, while everybody else just sees that as an occurrence, he sees it and it causes him this deep joy that can't be shaken. He sees something else. While everybody else is waiting for an event, what he sees in this baby causes him to worship God. What he sees is that salvation is not principles, it's not rules, it's not a religion, it's not a denomination. Salvation is a person. He has perspective. Here's the thing about perspective. You can see what everybody else sees, but see opportunity where everybody else sees obstacles. There's this story of two Salesmen that go to a remote town to sell shoes. The first man goes in there, looks around, nobody wears shoes, and he sees that as an obstacle, and he says, hey, nobody here wears shoes. It's pointless for us to try to sell. Let me go find somebody else. Second salesman comes in and says, hey, nobody here wears shoes. The market is wide open. Everybody's a customer. They both saw the same thing, but the second man saw something that nobody else saw. Here's why Simeon, why I think that as he sees this baby Jesus born into a poor family, while it causes him to rejoice, and it's because he sees opportunity. He sees that the God of the Bible that has made provision so that his house would be filled of all type of folk has now sent Somebody into the world sent his son in the form of a baby to a poor family. And what that means is that this God is no longer inaccessible. He's tangible. He's he's touchable. Even if Jesus came as a baby and was born into a rich family, do you know what he would be? Inaccessible, untouchable. You remember Michael Jackson had that baby and everybody called him Blanket because nobody could take pictures because he saw that he was so famous and precious that he held that blanket on him so people couldn't see him. When Jay-Z and Beyonce had their first shot, right, the hospital wing was blocked. You couldn't get near him. But here this Jesus, God in the flesh, is born into a poor family so much so that this guy This old man that's a stranger has enough access to whisk this baby out of his parents' arms and praise God for him. Jesus came into the world to be touchable. The fact that he was born into this poor family causes Simeon to rejoice because now this God, as he comes into the world, he's not going to be somebody that's immune to problems. Jesus' incarnation being born into the world as a person means that he's going to be God with us, right beside us in all of our problems. He's going to experience all the sorrow that you and I do. 
He's going to witness friends die and weep. He's going to experience homelessness that some of us in here have experienced. Where other people had to fund his ministry. He's going to experience loneliness that you and I could never imagine. Spending three and a half years with 12 men that never quite got him and abandoned him when he died. He's going to experience betrayal that some of us may have felt deeply, maybe in the betrayal of a loved one or a parent or a spouse. He's going to experience even a feeling of abandonment from God, not feeling like his prayers are heard. Do you know what that does? It reminds us that when you and I find ourselves experiencing those same things, we don't go to the Bible just to look for principles to apply to get us out of those things. We're reminded that if salvation is a person, that when we experience those things, we don't just look for principles to apply, we look for a person to talk to. And as we talk to him, we can be reminded that he's gone through the same things that we've gone through, that we're not alone, though we may feel like it. Him being born into the world means that he's open and available for everyone. So much so that as Jesus walked this earth, the security detail that he had, the 12 disciples that tried hard to make sure that he was protected, couldn't keep little kids out of his arms. The security detail wasn't strong or intelligent enough to keep a woman that had been sick for 12 years from breaking through their line to come and touch him. I want you to know that this message of Christmas this Savior that we talk about that made His way into the world. He came as a poor baby, threw off His glory and incarnated Himself as that so that you and I would know that He is available, accessible, He's touchable. It's not a disadvantage. It's not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. That's what Simeon says here. But then he goes on and says this. It's not just that he's content because God is available for everyone, but he ends his song and says this. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. He's not just available to all of us. He is applicable for everyone. How you relate to Jesus is the most important truth that everybody will ever face. Have you ever been to the doctor's office and they ask you all the questions and you get to some things that don't really apply and you write that little N slash A, not applicable, I don't have to answer this, the medication that I, I don't take any medication, I don't need it, so this information, it doesn't really apply to me. The end of the song helps you and I see that this message of Jesus God coming into the world to remove sorrow 
from the world is a message that is applicable to everybody. The most important truth in the universe for everybody is how you relate to Jesus. So much so that as he gives this, the end of the song says this, he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. This is trying to capture every category of humanity. Jesus came to bring God's light, the revelation of who God was, and a sense of his glory here to the earth. But what it also means, right? Here's why Christianity is tough. Because it is all about good news. But the only way to get to that good news and accept that good news is to believe very bad news. Right? Look here at the end of it, verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined, look, to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. His point is that this good news is, comes at the end of the road of you and I facing very bad news. To accept Jesus as a light of the revelation of God means that you and I have to say or accept we've been in darkness. We don't know what God's like. To accept Him as a picture of God's glory, right? All God's glory was in the Old Testament was this. What it was, it was a sign of God's favor and God's blessing. So when God delivered the children of Israel and they walked around in the desert in this scorching sun, do you know what they had? God's glory in the form of a pillar of cloud by day that kept them from the heat and a pillar of fire by night that kept them from the cold. And what we have to admit is that if God sending Jesus into the world is a sign of his glory, then what that means is that you and I have been without glory, without beauty, without God's favor and blessing. Israel failed in their task to represent God to the world because of their pride. God chose them, and his goal was that as they set themselves apart, God would use them to display his glory to all the nations. So as Israel cared for the poor, people that were poor in other nations that weren't cared for would look and say, man, I really want to be a part of that family. As Israel gave dignity to their women in the rest of the world, as people didn't give dignity to their women, women would look and say, man, I want to be a God, a, a, a part of that family. As Israel itself was an oppressed nation, and God raised them up and sent them out that the rest of the world wouldn't just be scared of God, but they would look and say, I want to be a part of that family. But do you know what takes place? Israel, this group that had God's glory in a unique way, lived their lives as if it was all about them. There was no master servant. It was a group of people that tried to reverse that. And try to put themselves on, on the top. That's what pride is. And that's what pride does. And do you know what pride brings? Sorrow. 
angst, frustration. The story of Israel was a history of people who although they had access to God, their pride kept them from experiencing God's glory and they experienced these self-inflicted wounds. And the good news of Jesus coming into this world is that Jesus coming into this world means that sorrow is on its way out of this world. Jesus coming into this world means that sorrow is on its way out. He is uniquely what he'll do. Jesus is going to spend his life being acquainted with the sorrow and grief of not just a nation, but an entire world. And instead of condemning this world, instead of condemning us based on our sins, instead of doing the fair thing and giving us the justice that we deserve, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to do the unfair thing. And he's going to remove sorrow from this world, not by punishing it in us, but he's going to remove sorrow in this world by taking it on his back on the cross and ushering it out. God's goodness, it comes, but it comes at the expense of our pride. Here's the funny thing about the Christmas gift. In order to accept the good news of Christ, we have to believe very true things about ourselves, which once we believe those things, changes our very identity. And it's not meant for us to be upset. It's meant for us to, to be joyful that there's somebody that cares. This seems like a trite example, but it's the best way that I know to make sense of it, and it's like this. Have you ever sat next to somebody, talked to them really, really close, and they turn and they offer you a piece of gum? What are they saying in that piece of gum? Listen. What they're saying is all about your perspective. If you're prideful and it's all about you, then you're going to be angry because you're going to take it as an insult. How dare you say that about me? And you're going to feel like it's an insult. Listen. But if you're filled with humility then what you see is that, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. This gift is not meant to be an insult. An insult would be if they insulted me based on this. This gift is them saying, I see there's something wrong. <laughs> but I'm providing a solution. I know that it's trite, but listen. As God sends his son into the world and Jesus comes and says that all of us fall short, it's not an insult. You, you, you only feel if it's an insult if what you want most in life is to be made much of. But if you want reconciliation 
to your creator, then as Jesus comes into the world and as he says something's wrong, you realize that in the same breath what he's saying is, I provided a solution. And so we don't major on the fact that I'm less than, I'm flawed, I'm messed up, I cause pain, I'm full of sorrow. What we major on is the fact I'm loved. There's somebody that's noticed all those same things and they've provided a way of access for me to get to God. This is the good news of Christmas that you and I are weak. You and I are flawed. You and I have things that are deeply wrong inside of us, but none of that keeps us from God's love. God shows his love to us tangibly in the person of Jesus Christ. He makes it accessible where you and I can touch it. It's applicable. It's the most important truth of the universe. And God has provided it to you and I on our front doorstep. This good gift requires us to believe something very bad about ourselves. But once we believe the truth about ourselves. We can experience the truth about God and live in that truth. We can have a contentment like Simeon that replaces or supersedes any circumstances that we find ourselves in this life. And like verse 33, it says here, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And you ask yourself, why were Mary and Joseph amazed? Did they forget that just 40 days ago an angel, an angel's prediction was right and Mary had a baby without being intimate with her husband? You don't forget that type of thing. It's not that they forgot. Their amazement came from the fact The beauty of what God has done when rehearsed to a heart that really believes it it should never get old. A heart that really believes what God has done doesn't find themselves apathetic when we really rehearse what God has done. Because as we continue to go through life what we'll find is that God changes us. God makes us better. But we still stumble. And we still fall. And each day afresh, we wake up and say, God, I'm amazed that somebody like you would send your son to come and get somebody like me. And a familiar song, when rehearsed, can provide new senses of wonder and amazement. Christmas offers us a contentment that doesn't have to change based on our circumstances. When we look forward to the promises of God, it gives us new eyes to see life right now for what it really is. And as we see life for what it really is, God gives us a sense of wonder and amazement that replaces the apathy that has a way of drowning us. 
I pray that as we go throughout the rest of this week and find ourselves on Tuesday in the same place that we've been for years, that regardless of who you're with, family, friends, kids, that it would be a good time for us to step back, pause, and to be reminded of the great things that God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you and we thank you for the gift of your son. We're grateful that Jesus coming into this world and revealing um, our need for a savior is not an insult. It's not meant to condescend. It's not meant to make us feel little, God. It's meant to make us feel loved, Lord. Would you help us to be reminded of the immense love that your son provided for us on the cross? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.